You're listening to the So What Podcast. Common misunderstanding of the Reformation, one of the most common, is the fact that the Reformation divided the church. No. The Reformation began with a divided church. Division was the point of origin for the Protestant Reformation. The church was divided between East and West in 1054. There were the Hussites, there were the Lollards. And one way to read the Reformation as it developed was an effort toward Christian unity. It was an effort to call the church back to oneness and unity based on the gospel, based on the scriptures. And welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues that ask the obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly and Travis Buchanan. Well, as always, we'd like to thank you for listening to the So What Podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help our podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at SoWhatPodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episode can be submitted by emailing hello at sowhatpodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at sowhat underscore podcast or by liking our Facebook page. Just search for the So What Podcast. I'm glad for all the territory that's being covered. This is excellent. Thank you, Dr. George. I want to return to Sola Scriptura for a moment. You mentioned the publication of Erasmus's 1516 Greek New Testament, so the year before the 95 Theses, which in many ways could be seen as an event as significant or as necessary in the process of this historically contingent chain of events that led to the full-blown Reformation the motto of the Reformation, ad fontis, I don't think we've mentioned that yet, though you referred to it when you were saying this retrieval of the sources or the charter documents of the Christian faith for the renewal of the church. One of my favorite anecdotes from the Reformation actually comes from the English Reformation, which I don't know that we'll have time to talk about today, but Thomas Lineker commented after reading Erasmus's 1516 Greek New Testament, he was a Renaissance humanist turned priest, And he responded, either this is not the gospel or we are not Christians. Mm. Yeah. And so maybe you could comment upon just the importance of, you mentioned some translation issues with the Greek word for repentance and how that was rendered in the Vulgate, but just this idea of how a return to the sources, a retrieval of the biblical writings in their original languages was, you know, kind of a firebrand for the Reformation. And then bring that up to today, how the church is still under the authority of the Word of God. The church still must wrestle with where the Bible takes us and how that may be in conflict with the Christian culture and the wider culture, how it may still be something against, you know, a stone on which we are sharpened and affect the policies we make, etc. 
Well, let me say this, first of all, about the living power of Holy Scripture. You gave that great example from Lineker, but also there were other reformers. I'm thinking of a reformer in Cambridge who was reading Erasmus' version of the New Testament, and he came across a verse from the Apostle Paul in which he talks about being the chief of sinners and, and how that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. He said, when I heard this voice, I felt as if my bruised bones leaped for joy. I mean, that gives the sense that this was a liberation. This was a conversion that was happening through the reading and the hearing and the preaching and the teaching of the written word of God. Uh, There was a freshness and an aliveness about it. You know, the Bible itself says in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is alive. It's powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we have to keep in mind, this is not just a musty doctrine about Sola Scriptura, and it's not just an old-fashioned document that was somehow dusted off and recovered and people could read, but it was a living, powerful, spiritual movement that brought people to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you ask about today. Well, the Word of God remains the authority under which we stand through the power of the Holy Spirit, focused entirely on Jesus Christ, our Savior. And without that authority, we really have nothing to say to the world because Christianity is not a philosophy of religion. It is not a code of ethics or behavior. Christianity is a word from God. It is a revelation of who God is and what he has done in Jesus Christ. And that shines through with clarity and power and spiritual vitality in the words of Holy Scripture. And so the church, insofar as it is faithful to Christ and faithful to the gospel, and indeed Christian in Lineker's sense of the word, is a church that is still under the word. Very good. So we've talked a lot about the significance, the importance, the positive aspects of the Reformation. Let's shift gears a little bit. Were there unintended negative consequences of Luther's action in 1517? And if so, what are they? Yes, yes, and yes. (laughs) Well, let me begin by saying Luther, in many respects, was a great prophet of God. I think I regard him as one of the two or three great central figures in the history of Christianity after the apostles. And yet, Luther was also a very big and great sinner. The redeeming point about him is that he knew this and threw himself on the mercy of God. But in many ways, Luther is not an example for us to follow today. We all know about the horrible, unjustifiable things he said about the Jewish people. He should have known better. We all know, or we should know, about his complicity in drowning to death of Anabaptists. He should have known better. There were many things about Martin Luther. He was a person of his times. He was a person who was blinded by his own sin, in many ways, his own narrowness, his own intolerance, whatever word you want to call for that. Yes, the Reformation did not emerge unscathed from some of the warts. And it doesn't help a whole lot to say, well, uh, you know, the Catholics were guilty of the same thing. Of course they were. The whole church needed to be reformed then as it does now. And God used Luther to awaken the church and call it back to true repentance based on the scriptures and based on the gospel. But Luther has a phrase, an expression in Latin, simul justus et peccator, at the same time sinful and righteous, at the same time just and also a sinner. And this is true, I think, not only of Martin Luther 
And not only of all of us who have been justified by faith in Christ, we still need to come to God's grace and seek forgiveness and repentance and renewal. And we'll need to do so until the very day we die. I believe Matt Riley, even John Wesley thought this, despite his doctrine of perfection. And you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I think that's true. Wesley had a great sense of God's repentance still being needed in the life of Christians. He did. There's a sermon where he says that he agrees with Calvin entirely on imputation near the end of his life. He even quotes a couple of passages from the Institutes affirming that. Methodists don't always like to reckon with that. But So I think if you're dealing purely with juridical terms, yes, even though he would want to insist on comprehensive transformation. So fair enough there. Yeah. And I want to just add one little point to that. And not only is Simul Eustace Epicotter at the same time righteous and sinful, applicable to us sinners who have been saved by grace, justified by faith, it's also applicable to the church. And here is one of the places where I think there is still disagreement between the Roman Catholic Church and evangelical understandings of the church. We do not believe that in the impeccability of the church, in the sinlessness of the church. We believe that Jesus Christ is sinful, but the church of Jesus Christ is a pilgrim church, ever in need of repentance, ever in need of forgiveness. And so we seek God's grace and renewal, and we pray the Lord's Prayer every single day of our lives, both individually and corporately as the people of God. Dr. George, sometimes negative consequences get expressed in terms of the multitude of Protestant denominations. There's maybe an impulse if Protestants disagree with one another, well, we can just go start our own denomination or church or something. Do you share the view that maybe that just the variety of denominations is an unintended negative consequence, or would you want to push back against that a little bit? Let me say a common misunderstanding of the Reformation, one of the most common, is the fact that the Reformation divided the church. No. The Reformation began with a divided church. Division Uh, was the point of origin for the Protestant Reformation. The church was divided between East and West in 1054. There were the Hussites. There were the Lollards. There were all kinds of divisions within the medieval Catholic Church. And one way to read the Reformation as it developed was an effort toward Christian unity, It was an effort to call the church back to oneness and unity based on the gospel, based on the scriptures. And both Luther and even much more so his friend and fellow reformer Philip Melanchthon, and even much more so John Calvin, were all intently concerned about Christian unity. And so should we be. The fact that the Reformation in the end did not succeed in uniting the church doesn't mean that it was not a very important effort and one that we should continue if we take seriously Jesus' words in John 17. Now, your question begs for one other brief comment. Unity, division, truth, and love. We seek unity, but not unity at the expense of truth. The great chapter, John 17, where Jesus calls his disciples to unity as the Father and I are one, so may these disciples you have given me be one, so that the world may believe. In that same chapter, he also calls them to unity in the truth. He says, your word is truth. And so unity without truth is not real unity. It's a sham, false unity. What we are about is not compromising our theological convictions based on the word of God, 
but digging more deeply into the scriptures until we hit finally a reservoir of wisdom and truth that we can share together because we've been drawn closer to Jesus Christ. That's the vision of Christianity, I believe, is truly in line with the deepest insights of the Protestant reformers. I think it's wonderful that you're calling for unity, especially drawing it all the way back from the Reformation, because as Matt has said, it's the division that's highlighted often and not the call for unity. And we're aware that you are actively involved in the evangelical Catholic dialogue today. Are there any pointers that you would give our listeners to approaching their Catholic friends in speaking about Protestantism, Reformation thought, and the heritage that we come from? You know, there are certain things we cannot do, we Protestants cannot do with Roman Catholics, and one of them is have the Lord's Supper. The Catholic Church does not permit it, and there are good reasons at this point in our life together that we cannot come together to the Lord's table. But there are other things that we can, I think, and ought to do together with our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. Perhaps the most important is prayer. We can pray. We share with them the wonderful Lord's Prayer that Jesus gave to all of his disciples. And we can read the scriptures. We can study the Bible with our Catholic brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's how the Reformation started, come to think of it, a Catholic monk reading the Bible. And so if we can return to those fundamental resources of the faith, I think it opens up not only communication, but real fellowship with Catholics. And then let me just add another word. I think there are many things related to how we live our life together in society and in culture where Catholics and evangelical believers are drawn closer together. We have a common concern for the sanctity of human life. Every person made in the image of God, including those persons still waiting to be born, are precious in the sight of Christ. And so we can advocate for that in our culture, which sometimes recent Pope John Paul II called a culture of death. There are many things like that where we do share a common worldview with Roman Catholics based on our Christian convictions. So I would say pray read the scriptures, find acts of mercy and common ministry that you can do together, and then advocate on behalf of those issues that matter to you because they matter to Christ. Should visible unity with the Roman Catholic Church ever be a Protestant goal? Yeah. What other kind of unity is there? Visible unity. That is the goal. Unity of polity then. That's a different question. Okay. One understanding of visible unity would involve a unity of polity, one shepherd, one sheepfold. Uh, And some people means that, you know, we all have to go back to Rome and say the Pope is our father. But this is a goal. We are not there yet. And I think it's fairly premature to say that, you know, we put all of our eggs in the basket of complete visible unity. That may not happen until Jesus comes. Yeah, and I'm not necessarily meaning, you know, kiss the ring sort of thing, but is it feasible to even think that it's possible for Protestants to meet in the middle with Rome ever? I don't like the language of meet in the middle. Center is a bad word in my vocabulary because if you have a line of people and there's a center, it means somebody's over here on the far right and somebody's on the far left and they've got a rope and they're pulling this way and they're pulling that way. And the center is always changing. It's malleable. A better word is core. A core is three-dimensional, and you drill down to the deepest core of a doctrine, of a reality, 
of a fellowship, and that's where we find our unity. And the core, which of course is the Latin word for heart, is Jesus Christ. The closer we come to Jesus Christ, the closer we come to one another. So I do believe that we should seek for ways in which we can express the visible unity of the church with one another, recognizing we are not there yet and we may never get there in this world until Jesus comes. It doesn't mean that we are free to simply bypass what Jesus said and not pray for the fulfillment of his prayer in John 17. That reminds me of another favorite anecdote from the English Reformation from Queen Elizabeth I. Supposedly, she said this. I've been able to unable to corroborate it in any document, but her reign coincided with the tumultuous changing of power between Catholics and Protestants in England. Reportedly, she said, there is one Jesus Christ, the rest is mere trifles, which, <laughs> which of course is an overstatement, but that's if that idea of it, having... should have said it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But that's that idea of a core... I don't actually think of Queen Elizabeth as a great theologian. No. Uh, basically told people, you can believe what you want to, so long as you do what you're told. Yeah. But I think she did have a kind of faith. She read her New Testament. So if she said that, uh, good for her. Yeah. I wanted to ask one last question regarding the sources of our theology, because it's come up several points in this discussion. We have our Wesleyan here with us in the studio. So you have the Wesleyan quadrilateral, for example, of reason, experience, tradition. Be careful there. And scripture, which is a helpful way to think of some different sources for theological reflection and guardrails on Christian faith and practice. So we've talked about sola scriptura. You mentioned, and I'm thinking just existentially in the life of Martin Luther himself, tradition, he's an Augustinian monk. You mentioned the importance of Augustine's teachings, particularly related to sin and grace and the Pelagian controversy, etc., as an influence on Luther. And you mentioned his experience of feeling dread at God's judgment and the hopelessness of justification for his many sins of which he was acutely aware and his, you know, dialogues with the devil and the temptations he faced. And if there was not grace that was unable to be merited given from God through Christ, that he would be lost. Maybe you could say a word about that in Luther's life, because I think it's maybe unfair to, sola scriptura is of course the one that gets placed among the five solas, but that is can be misleading to say that tradition and reason and experience are unimportant in the Protestant tradition, or that all we need is the Bible, and you know, and then you see, well, the rub is the Bible has to be interpreted, and here we are with thirty three thousand plus denominations or whatever the figure is under the Protestant umbrella. So maybe you could say something about those sources of theology in Luther's experience, and then today for the Protestant Church, just thinking broadly across various denominational lines, how these might be prioritized or related to one another, coordinated together. All of those realities are important, and every theologian who's worth his or her salt uses them. Scripture, reason, experience, tradition, but they are not on the same level. And I think the doctrine of sola scriptura, or maybe a better way to say it is primaria scriptura. The scriptures are primary. The scriptures have a, a normative role that the other, as you call them, sources, I'm not sure that's the best word for them, but these theological modalities have. Let's say a word about experience and a word about tradition. Luther at one point says, experientia facit theologum. Experience makes a theologian. 
And there is no theologian except a theologian who is under the judgment of God and the grace of God. The only God there is is the God who saves you and damns you, Luther says. That means his experience, his experience of of justification, of sinfulness, of, of weakness, of inadequacy. This is absolutely crucial in how he came to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. But he doesn't make that experience the basis of his theology. No more than he makes his appeal to conscience the autonomous basis of his work. But we don't do away with experience. A theology without experience is algebra. I mean, it doesn't connect with any living creature, any sinner who needs to be saved by grace. So yes, experientia facia theologum. I agree with Luther. And then tradition. We often pit scripture versus tradition. What he debated with John Eck at Leipzig in 1519 was just about scripture and tradition. And Luther did not say, let's throw out everything everybody has said since the last apostle died and go simply right back to the very words of scripture and nothing else. Sola scriptura is not nuda scriptura. It's not the naked scripture. But what sola scriptura means is that scripture has a primary criteriological function in theology. And we do not put anything on its level, much less above it. It is the word of God, and therefore we are accountable to it. And the church must be reformed on the basis of it. That's what sola scriptura means. But within that framework, tradition plays a very important role. The creeds of the church, the confessions of the church, the prayers and liturgies of the church. All of this is a part of how God has dealt with his people through the ages. And we are very foolish if today we ignore it and think we can start all over from scratch. Just with me and Jesus, we got a good thing going. Me and him, we got it all worked out. That kind of piety leads to a definite dead end. I think I'm going to be so bold that your next book should be called Scripture in the Nude, question mark. <laughs> Thank you for that suggestion. Yeah. Or Naked Church, I could see doing really well that in might, some markets. That might yeah. push taken, back on you know. Nuda Scriptura a little bit. <laughs> scripture itself is tradition in a sense. Don't you think that's important to recognize? I mean, you have the whole Old Testament, the history of Israel, which is a long tradition that's bequeathed to the church. And then the gospel itself is something that is handed down, or you have, you know, the Greek word parodidomai, the sense of delivering to entrusting this message, the gospel message, which you said was so important to Luther. So even within the New Testament, we have the record of the handing on of tradition from Jesus to his apostles and from the apostles to people like Timothy and the leaders in the various churches. And so, I mean, is it possible to think of the gospel itself as tradition? And then I like the way you said primary scripture as a primary function of authority in the church. And then from that perspective, viewing the subsequent tradition of the church as being more or less faithful to that core of Jesus' tradition, which incorporates the history of Israel and what God was doing, you know, in the thousands of years leading up to the incarnation. And from this primary place of scripture, kind of weighing subsequent tradition and seeing more or less faithfulness at various periods or in various theologians to that core. I like your way of putting it. I mean, we are not Mormons. We don't believe that God's word dropped down from heaven on golden plates. It came through communities of human beings. It came through apostles and prophets. And so, yes, we recognize that in that sense, the scripture is a traditioned 
document, if I can use tradition in that kind of way. However, we do believe that there is a canon of Scripture. There is a corpus of divinely inspired writings that God by the Holy Spirit has set apart and the church has recognized. This is the way I would say it as opposed to a Catholic might say the church decided the canon or the church made the canon. No, the church recognized the canon and in doing so, uh, put itself under the authority of God's revealed word in Scripture. So that, as you say, all of the subsequent theologians and conciliar creeds and documents have to be held accountable to the written word of God. That's the Protestant understanding of the Scripture. But it does mean that the Bible comes to us from within the community of God's people going all the way back to Israel. 